Welcome to Positive Life. We're bringing a positive influence into this world and into your life. And hi, I'm Bob Miles. And today's episode is going to be on Simon Peter and his conversation with Jesus after he rose. And this comes right out of John 21. And John 21 reads, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourselves and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. 
But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So that was out of John 21, like I said. And we are going to be going over that again in this episode a couple of times. So just be aware of that. And so Rick Warren writes, failure can lead to your greatest success. When you're in the middle of failure, it can seem like nothing good will ever come from it. But God can always bring good from your failures. In fact, your worst failure can become your greatest success. If you let him, God will use your failures to build his church. Jesus told Peter in Luke 22:32, When you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen and build up the faith of your brothers. Before Peter had even failed, Jesus gave him a vision of how God could use his failure for good. After Peter's failure, when he denied Jesus three times, Jesus died and then was resurrected. And when he and Peter met again on the seashore, Jesus reminded Peter of how good could come from his failure. And we just went over that conversation in John 21. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Why did he ask that three times? He was giving Peter the opportunity to make up for the three times he had denied Jesus. And each time, Jesus gave Peter another way he could use his failure for good. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. On the same night that Peter had denied Jesus, another disciple, Judas, had failed Jesus. But ultimately, Judas chose to become a traitor to Jesus, while Peter chose to become a teacher and a leader of Jesus' church. In Matthew 16:18, Jesus says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the power of hell will not conquer it. God is building his church on people who have failed. In fact, God only uses failed people, because there aren't any perfect people. What are you going to become from your failure? It's your choice. So profound sadness coupled with terror wrapped Peter's stomach and clenched it into a tight, painful knot. Yes, Jesus had told his disciples that he would be killed, even that he would be crucified. But Peter hadn't believed it. When you see daily miracles and hear incisive teaching from a confident public figure, you refuse to acknowledge that anything could ever change. But overnight, Peter's world collapsed. They had eaten Passover together on Thursday night, but only a few hours later, Jesus was under arrest. A hasty trial lit by a flickering lamps in the high priest's palace condemned Jesus. Then early morning shuttles to Pilate, then Herod, then back again to Pilate, sealed his fate. By 9 a.m., soldiers were pounding nails into his hands and feet, jerking him upright on a cross to let him hang in the sun until the sun itself hid its face and left the onlookers to watch the master die in the eerie chill of this very black day. Peter had fled. In fact, none of the twelve remained to see him buried. Only Mary Magdalene and a couple of wealthy followers were left to take his body down, carry it outside the city, and entomb it. If you ever felt despair at the pit of your stomach, then you know what Peter felt. 
When he did go out, he would walk in a kind of daze, utterly disoriented, shattered, the center of his world now a black hole, an empty void. How could the Messiah, the heir of David's throne, be executed? It went against all logic. It was impossible, yet it had happened, and oh so swiftly. Peter slept fitfully Saturday night, and when his eyes opened Sunday morning, the doom of death was heavy upon him. He pulled his cloak over his eyes, hoping he could fall back to sleep, but knowing he wouldn't. All of a sudden, someone was banging on the door. Soldiers. Peter got up with a start. How can I escape? Then he heard Mary Magdalene's voice, and his terror fell back into depression. Mary was breathless, troubled, her face stained with tears. Peter grumbled, Why did you have to wake me so early? Mary blurted out, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Peter pulled his fellow disciple John to his feet, slammed the door behind them, and began to run through the narrow streets, out to the city gate, and then on to the tomb. The great stone that had sealed the tomb stood open. As they entered, the sepulcher was empty, except for some folded grave cloths. The body was gone. Folded, that was strange. Folded grave clothes, but no body. Hardly what you'd expect from grave robbers. John seemed convinced by the grave clothes that somehow Jesus had been resurrected or something, but Peter wasn't so sure. How could he believe that after so much had happened, he walked slowly back towards the city, pondering, thinking, wanting to believe, but afraid to hope. Suddenly, Jesus appeared to Peter. The so-called rock had publicly betrayed him. He had shouted, I don't know this man. He was so unworthy, and yet here was Jesus before him. Peter fell to his knees and wept for joy. Peter never said much to the others about this meeting. What had been said, what had transpired, but after that you'd sometimes see Peter deep in thought, pensive. Then he would nod his head and traces of a smile would begin to transform his face into one written with thankfulness and joy and peace. Peter had been whipsawed from the, his pit of despair and pulled by the master into peace. Life had changed for the good, and since then many have found the same peace, the same smile of wonder at Jesus' amazing grace. Maybe you too. Jesus has risen, and Peter never doubted him again. So next, I'm going to introduce a song called At the Cross by Tommy Walker, and here it is. Say 
Hey, what a great song by Tommy Walker. And here's what Tommy said regarding this song. He said, how fitting it is that we have the privilege of releasing this great hymn on Good Friday. I pray we can all let Romans 5.8 sink in. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were showing our best behavior or while we're feeling good about ourselves. No, while we were and yet still sinners. He died for you and me. In one version of this hymn, the lyrics say, Would he devote that sacred herd from such a worm as I? When Isaac Watts wrote the hymn in the 1700s, he understood the blessing and power of the gospel, that he, we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, that the less grace we feel we need, the less we will get. Let's bow our hearts and lives in sincere, humble gratefulness that Jesus has forgiven us through his blood on the cross. For anyone who has not received forgiveness and salvation from Jesus, you can pray this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior of the world and that your blood has the power to forgive me of my sins. I repent and turn from them now and receive your forgiveness and gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you prayed this prayer, begin going to church that believes in the authority of the Bible and tell someone that you have committed your life to Christ. Hallelujah. From what you have read in the New Testament, can you imagine Peter, James, John, Paul, or any of the other early believers in Jesus losing one moment of his sleep, worrying about what other people might think, feeling anxious about where their next meal was coming from, or being afraid of what the devil might be up to? Not a chance. The initial emotion of fear is not the problem, but when you park there and let fear continue to have control, you suffer a negative impact on your well-being and dishonor God. Peter specifically didn't start out as fearless, but Peter overcame crippling fear, and his story illustrates how you can do the same. When Jesus first called Peter to follow him, Peter was an uneducated fisherman accustomed to a hard life. During the three years he spent as Jesus' disciple and constant companion, Peter's mouth and an impetuous spirit sometimes got him into trouble. Then when Jesus was on trial, just before his crucifixion, Peter denied him three times. We know the story, and like Peter, we may either say, I'll never deny him, or live in fear that we might. 
But imagine things that night for Peter's perspective. The Jewish authorities had arrested his leader, and the outcome wasn't looking good. His world and everything he believed appeared to be collapsing around him. He couldn't tear himself away from the spectacle, but was afraid that if others recognized him, they might arrest him also. His very life was at stake. Did Peter have another option besides denying Jesus that night? Of course. But appreciate for a moment the very human fear going through his mind. I doubt you ever felt any more afraid than Peter did that night. So just a few weeks later, everything about Peter was different. He and John ministered healing to the lame man at the temple gate. A crowd gathered in amazement, and Peter was soon speaking to them all about Jesus, apparently not caring what anyone thought. Peter and John were soon arrested and called to stand before the authorities. In his answers, Peter held nothing back. Even the authorities were surprised. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were illiterate and uneducated men, they marveled and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But Peter and the others weren't satisfied. When the early believers gathered together after Peter and John's release, they prayed for even more boldness. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with great boldness. And that's from Acts 4.29. More boldness? There's absolutely no hint of the previous fear in Peter's heart. And the following chapters of Acts show that this prayer was fulfilled. Peter continued to preach Jesus boldly right under the noses of those who would do anything possible to stop him and the others. That freedom from fear stuck with Peter. When the Jew authorities couldn't stop him, the secular authorities tried. Herod killed Peter's fellow disciple James and planned to kill Peter also. But even that very real threat couldn't make Peter afraid. The night before Herod was planning to bring Peter out of for public execution, Peter was so fast asleep in the prison that the angel sent to rescue him had to shake him awake from Acts 12. Could you sleep that soundly if you knew that you were about to be killed? Peter had truly overcame fear. Peter's transformation demonstrates that even if fear had controlled you and caused you to do destructive or sinful things, you don't have to stay that way. The part of your heart that lives in fear can be healed and set free. And through God's grace, you can develop courage and boldness, becoming fearless even in the face of the worst that the enemy can bring against you. How did Peter get there? It wasn't by trying harder and repeating, I will not be afraid as a mantra, or white-knuckling courageous behavior. Peter overcame crippling fear through spending time with Jesus, seeing him alive after his resurrection, and experiencing the Holy Spirit's presence. So if you need to overcome fear, do what Peter did. Spend time, lots of time, in Jesus' presence. Contemplate Jesus alive, seated at God's right hand, and with you right now. Seek the daily presence of the Holy Spirit. You too can overcome crippling fear and become even more useful in God's kingdom as a result. So today on recording this episode is Palm Sunday, and some call it Passion Sunday. And from John 12:13, they took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed be who comes in the name of the Lord. And the accounts of the days leading up to the first Resurrection Sunday shows how to prepare ourselves in meaningful ways for Easter. 
So what if we prepared ourselves and our souls in meaningful ways, ways that can be found in the biblical accounts of the days leading up to the first Resurrection Sunday? So here is what the first Palm Sunday in the Bible can teach us. And from Luke 19, 29-31, we need to do what Jesus says. Luke the historian records the first Palm Sunday, a week before the resurrection. As Jesus approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Jesus sent two of his disciples on a strange little mission. We don't know which two disciples went, nor do we know what they talked about on the way. But it wouldn't be surprising if they weren't wandered. You really think we should just untie the colt and take it? You think the master knows the owner? You think that this is a test of some kind? What if somebody takes a swing at us? You see, we typically read the Bible like a play as if all the characters knew the script. But they didn't. And yet, whoever they were, those disciples did what Jesus said. And their simple obedience brought glory to God. The Bible says that shortly after they completed their mission, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. That's a good model for the week before Easter. We can do not better than to follow the example of those two unnamed disciples, Your obedience probably won't involve a donkey. Only you and God know what it will involve. Is he calling you to repentance and faith in him? Is he telling you to forgive someone? To help someone? To give something up? To say yes to something? To say no to something? So whatever it is, you may be surprised, like the disciples Jesus sent to Bethpage, at how your simple act of obedience will bring glory to God. And next is Luke 19, 41-44. We feel what Jesus feels. Another part of the first Palm Sunday in the Bible clues us into the second way to prepare for Easter. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, because you did not recognize the time God's coming to you. We tend to forget that this event was even part of the triumphant entry, We get caught up in the crowd, the shouts, the emotion, the excitement, while Jesus' tears go unnoticed. But apparently the crowds and the disciples didn't pay much attention to his tears either. Matthew didn't record it. Mark didn't mention it. Luke is the only writer to record this event. The Greek word Luke used to say Jesus wept signifies more than tears. It suggests a kind of soul-wracking, gut-wrenching, sobbing in person does at the tomb of a friend. It is the word used of Mary sobs at the tomb of her brother Lazarus, of Mary Magdalene sobs at Jesus' tomb, and of Peter's bitter weeping after he denied Jesus and heard the cock crow. Jesus wept violently for the people of Jerusalem. Not for himself, not for the cross that awaited him, but for the fate that would come upon that city when Roman armies would invade in 70 AD, raise the city, destroy its glorious temple, and 
brutalize its rebellious people. Everyone else was having a party, and Jesus was filled with compassion for the lost sheep of Israel who did even know their own sad condition. That, too, is a good model. We could do no better than to prepare for Resurrection Sunday by letting ourselves feel what Jesus feels for those who are hurting, wandering, searching. Those who don't even know they are searching. For lost sheep, many of whom don't even know they're lost sheep. And the third and last one is Matthew 21, 10 through 11, to tell who Jesus is. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. When Matthew reports that the city was stirred, he uses the word sayo, from which we get our word seismic. It's the same word he used later in the gospel when he said that at the moment Jesus died on the cross, the earth shook and the rocks split. The city was stirred as an earthquake stirs the ground. Isn't that what needs to happen in your community this Easter, to be stirred? Isn't that what your community is longing for, waiting for, to see if the people who fill the churches and sing Jesus' praises really know him? to fulfill the promise of the first Palm Sunday in the Bible? To prepare for Resurrection Sunday, tell who Jesus is, find ways to share with friends, neighbors, family members, classmates, co-workers, anyone for whom we can feel that Jesus feels. The news that we proclaim on Easter Sunday in the age-old confession of the church, He is risen, He is risen indeed. So I'm going to end today's episode on an audio clip by Billy Graham about Simon Peter and sin. And here it is. The closer you get to Christ, the more sinful you're going to feel. Did you realize that? Everyone who's ever seen a true reflection of God is deeply convicted of his own sin. Peter said, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. The fact that you're aware of your sin and feel guilty about it is a sign of spiritual life. And sometimes we can feel guilty, very guilty. But God will use us in the way he wants to use us if we will confess our sin. Only God can forgive us and cleanse us. And he's provided that way by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for you as a gift to you. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to do anything. It's all free. All you have to do is receive it as a gift, and he will come into your life. So that does bring in the end of our episode today. And my closing prayer, as always, is that God blesses the journey you're on with him and that you embrace that path. So next week's episode is on Easter, the resurrected Christ. So you can connect with me at positivelightpodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Anywhere you download your podcast, you can get Positive Light for free. Hope everybody had a great week. God bless, and we'll catch you next week.